Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Black Light listeners. How y'all doing today? Welcome to the show today. Can y'all believe it? um, Mr. Cobb is back. He's been missing for a minute, (laughs) y'all. I've been missing for a minute. Yeah, I've been on vacation (laughs) under the weather. All right, man, tell them what we're going to be talking about today. What we discussing. Today's show is about exonerations, withhold evidence concerning. I got a couple articles on it. And we're going to be talking about bringing awareness to public defenders, a movement, so we can try to get funding towards helping. Uh, people with their cases and getting reevaluated, and people to be helped with their cases to prevent them from co- coming to prison or get fair sentences. Other than that, uh, we also it's going to bring awareness to the effects that it's having on North Carolina and other states today. I want to give a shout out to everybody that's been listening to us. Thank New you, York, Cali. Arizona, all up north, New York, (laughs) everybody. Uh, We even have some people from Singapore, Australia. Like, yeah, thank you so much for the love. Yes, I I really am thankful that y'all continue to listen and download us, man. Uh, We would love for y'all to reach out to us on uh, our email address. So, uh, don't be a stranger. I know y'all got it by now. Y'all got, y'all got the email address for y'all. Don't be a stranger to hit us because we're going to talk to y'all back. Right. And you anybody want to be so, a guest, reach out. We love, we, we need guests. Prosecutors, if prosecutors want to be on here and give their side of the story, public defenders, social workers, anybody that is working in this system, I don't care what state you're in, we love to have different perspectives from different states, um, you know, maybe could help propel North Carolina in a different direction. Um, so we welcome all guests from everywhere. We don't care where yet. Tap in. Yeah, please do that. Please tap in. We also want to bring awareness to that uh, any lawyers out there that want to help us concerning post convictions, and if you are certified to litigate in North Carolina. Don't be a stranger to hit us on an email so we can try to get things done. We do have our own nonprofit, which is the Care Bear Foundation, uh, registered down here in North Carolina. So we are on uh, a holistic mental health movement, and we are also on a holistic legal aid uh, consultation, and we're trying to get that movement on the up. So lawyers out there in other states, including our own, North Carolina, that's uh, looking for a little extra money on the side or whatever, please feel free to email us and uh, let us know that you know, you're trying to get into that movement. Plus, you know, 
I even I need help on my case because I'm trying to get back in with myself. Because I feel like my evidence has been withheld from me, you know, with the DA. So we're going to do that and say that and hope that y'all can stick in with us. So we're going to start out with this first article. They're going to read the first article and we're going to talk about it. So the very first one I kind of want to tap into before we have to go to this quick commercial break is the Sentencing Project and them running the 50-year mass incarceration campaign to end or decarcerate the United States as a whole. The United States is the only country that continues to mass incarcerate people due to supposedly crime, but there are other countries that have been able to successfully not mass incarcerate as well as keep crime at a minimum because they are displaying or providing resources to the community as well as treating people that are incarcerated like humans, like Germany and Norway are really great examples of how America could really get back on track and not continue to keep not only throwing adults away, but children away as well. And so we will definitely give you those six steps that we all could take that the Sentencing Project has put out. And I will definitely provide the, the article links to these articles so you can check them out. And like I said, hopefully we can decarcerate the United States as a whole and not just state by state, because in order for us to move forward, we have to decarcerate. We can't just keep holding people in prisons for the rest of their lives because they either committed a crime or didn't. And I just think that it's kind of odd that, you know, prosecutors and people on that side of the slate always want to look at people like, you know, well, you committed this crime, you deserve this X amount of years, but a lot of them are committing crimes themselves. And because they are in position of power, it goes under the radar. And so we also have to do a better job as the United States is making sure that even if these people in position of power are doing illegal things, that they're also held accountable, just like they want to hold the community accountable. They need to be held accountable for some of the things that they do that is not right, that is throwing people's lives away and losing families and, and everything that comes with incarceration. So I will definitely dig back into that. We're going to go to a short break and we'll be right back. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends, mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. back to give you the juice um shout out again to yeah. 
to the Sentencing Project. You caught the episode last week. You know that I spoke with Alex Bailey from the Sentencing Project, and they do amazing, amazing work. And so it has six steps that the United States as a whole could take to stop mass incarceration. We have had mass incarceration for over 50 years. And so one could be abolish death or life without parole sentencing, limiting the maximum sentence to 20 years. Number two, limit murder statutes to intentional killings, excluding offenses such as felony murder and reduce homicide penalties. Three, eliminate mandatory minimum sentencing to reform sentencing guidelines to ensure that judges can use their discretion to consider mitigating circumstances. The other one is provide universal access to parole and ensure timely review. Number five is eliminate consecutive sentencing and limit sentencing enhancements, including repelling truth in sentencing and habitual offender laws. Six, create an opportunity for judicial second look resentencing within a maximum of 10 years of imprisonment regardless of the individual's offense. Seven, shift all sentences downward, including by de-felonizing many offenses and decriminalizing many misdemeanors. Um, so those are seven steps that we could take to productively end mass incarceration. What do you think, babe? Well, yeah, I mean, because the felony murder rules Killing a lot of people, when it, killing a lot of people's chances, man. When it comes to arguments, and it's no room for an argument to give a person any leverage that's innocent. Basically, they count in the mouth before they can even state their case. Because I mean, he's saying that acting in the concert and conspiracy is like two unbeatable things, and. Uh, after the concert, that could be on anybody. Um, you know, you ride in a car with somebody, but that you don't know a person's long frame or where they just came from, who they got sentenced arguing with. You just getting a ride, or they picking you up after a situation, and, and but they looking at you as an acting the concert because you was in a car with somebody that committed a crime, or that went into a store and. You don't know that they're going to rob it, but you're in the midst of it, and that just really cancels your cancels your chances of your innocence. So yeah, like these seven steps is key principles to open them doors. You know what I'm saying? And then it takes the prosecutors leverage out when it comes to making improper decisions instead of really trying to implement prosecution. You are a district attorney more than you are a prosecutor. You know what I'm saying? I think that they're taking prosecution to a whole other level instead of just being the district attorney. You're still an attorney at the end of the end of the day. You know what I'm saying? So you still gotta make decisions based off of attorney's perspective. I would think that you're not supposed to, um, I'm not supposed to judge you off of what I think. I'm supposed to judge you off the evidence that's presented. So if you are the district's attorney and 
you know that it's evidence that's going to set somebody free, then you know that that's what needs to be implemented instead of holding, which is where the crime is committed on their behalf, and that's not cool. Because in the Brady Rule, that's what was supposed to transform the U.S. justice system then when they, in Supreme Court, they decreed in 1963 that the prosecutors must share favorable evidence criminal offense so for the criminal defendants, you know what I'm saying? But now, today, you got at least 44%, you know, that's what 44% uh, helps on convictions, wrongful convictions, is holding evidence. That's 44%, 44% from 1989 to 2019 to 2023. So that, that's like a large percentage when it comes out of 100%. So it's like the Brady rule is just being looked over. It ain't even being implemented. And that's breaking the law. That's, that's y'all, y'all. I mean, they, the U.S. has implemented that rule, the Brady rule. So I'm trying to figure out why they ain't following that. Okay. That's, that's a large number. So I can answer that question. The reason why that they're not following the Brady rule is because of the culture. Just like the culture of prison is to treat people inhumanely instead of correcting them. Like, the United States like to use certain words to make it, to paint a different narrative when there's only one narrative to it. So, just like prosecutors, their their culture is to automatically think you're guilty. That That's that's what their culture is. Their, their culture is to think, okay, well, they're guilty. Let me find all evidence to make them guilty, whether they're guilty or not. Two, when you add politics into the justice system, this is why we are at mass incarceration. Because if you've noticed, you've heard all prosecutors that are running for re-election, they always say, look how many cases I have prosecuted. And people give them cookies and clap for them when they say they have a high number of people they have prosecuted. Instead of us saying, you know, well, look, were they, did you have all the sufficient? Now, it has to be sufficient. It can't just be evidence. That's what people need to understand. It can't just be, it has to be sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt evidence that you committed those crimes. Because anybody can paint a picture about anything. But if you don't have sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt evidence, then you don't have much of nothing. And so... This is where the Brady Law is being broke because those people are chasing after numbers. They are taking people's lives and looking th- looking at them as a number, just like they do when you're in prison. They call you by your state number. They don't, some of them don't. Most of them don't even try to call you by by your name. They call you by your state number. So that is what they're doing out here. They are looking at people as numbers so that they can run for a different position or keep running for that position. Instead of saying, okay, let's 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 really see if we have the evidence, because what it's supposed to be is both attorneys, district and defense, are supposed to hunt for the truth. Prosecutors also have to, they're also supposed to make sure that the person they're prosecuting rights are being are not being violated. They go all over that. Why? Because they are so focused on one thing, which is trying to get that guilty verdict. It's not about, did this person really commit this crime? 
Did this person really conspire together to commit this crime? That That's not what they're looking at. They're looking at those numbers that say you prosecuted this amount of people in your term. And so that is what helped propel them in different other powers of position. So that is why we are where we are. You know, other countries don't look at their people as numbers. They actually try to support their community members and make sure that, you know, their communities have the resources that, that they need. And when people are incarcerated in other countries, they are treating them like they are human beings. People, everybody makes a mistake. Even the prosecutors, all these people in position of power, nobody is perfect and people have made mistakes. People have done things they weren't supposed to do. It's just that some other some people get caught more than others, which seems to be the community because, as we'll talk about later, prosecutorial misconduct is never caught. It's never caught, and it's, it's a crime. You're not supposed to convict somebody if you know you don't have the evidence to convict them. And so many people are losing their lives behind that. And so America has painted this picture as, oh, well, we have to give people long sentences to stop crime, as we see 50 years later, it still hasn't stopped any type of crime by you incarcerating people and giving them five life sentences, which makes no sense to me. We know that realistically nobody could do five life sentences. Nobody can die and come back five times to complete five life sentences. So why are we even giving stuff like that? And yes, murder does, it does a lot. It brings a lot of tragedy and hurt and pain, but we've never tried to restore and figure out why people are harming other people. And it's important to implement restorative justice, not only in the community, but in the courtroom so that we are restoring each other and not keeping each other torn apart. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel as though they, okay, they say about violent crime, but at the end of the day, it's a behavior. It's not a crime. So you got to think about the act of murder is a behavior. Um, abusive domestic violence situations are behavior. We're going to put the real expression out there is anger. A person that's not in control of the anger, they make a decision out of that emotion. So that's not a crime. That's just an expression of emotion. So we uh, have the media, social media, the justice system has put titles on behavior and emotion and called them crime. So instead of doing punishing acts and giving X amount of time inside of a box and making the person's behavior worse because it's not healing them at all. So the justice system is a big has a big responsibility when it comes to that, releasing people back on the street, and this they worse than what they were before they even went in. So they really have to take that in consideration too. Talking about recidivism, so yeah, the system is a big is a is, has a, a big hand in bringing people right back to prison as well. So they taking crimes and making them a business. Because they're not healing anybody. They're not fixing them. No murderers, no rapists, no child molesters, or nothing. They're supposed to be trying to reprogram the thinking of the individuals when it comes to these crimes. 
So when you do, when you do have a person that's in court for a child molestation, we need to be putting them in a program, mental health program, and try to figure out what's the reason why this person wants to get kids or why this person has an obsession with rape or why this person has an obsession with killing people. This comes from childhood trauma all cultivated all the way to adulthood or trauma period having a reflection on it and this is how this person that is implemented. So we're talking about a justice system, a workable justice system, and it's holistic. A holistic perspective in the whole nine is the cure. So these articles that we are reading and touching bases on about exoneration, about uh, wrongful convictions, and this and that. This is really implementing trauma. Prosecutors are really implementing more trauma on the defendants that they call in criminals. You know what I'm saying? They're making the situations even worse. With him evidence by prosecutors who's the real criminal um, would be the question. And you know, I, I know we got another article that we're about to go into, probably touching on that same basis around that area. Well, yeah, the Innocence Project wrote that, um, wrote an article because they did do a survey. And they did a survey with a bunch of judges. And it says judges mostly agree on most problematic prosecutorial misconduct, but that doesn't translate to accountability. So it says, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs. It says, most judges are highly discerning of the way prosecutors conduct themselves in cases and courtrooms and believe that unethical acts should be investigated as misconduct. A recent study found, however, these perspectives alone are not enough to curb prosecutorial misconduct. The study titled, Prosecutorial Misconduct Assessment of Perspectives from the Bench and published by the American Judges Association. Okay, so this is y'all own folks. This is not the community. This is the people that y'all work with saying that they have seen prosecutors doing misconduct. It says the published by the American Judges Association Court Review look to answer the central questions. Do judges generally agree on what constitutes prosecutorial misconduct? So that is telling you right there, just in those two paragraphs, that there are people that work inside the state, inside of these offices, that see prosecutorial misconduct all the time. Because you do know that judges' discretions were reduced and prosecutorial discretions was increased. So that means prosecutors have way more say-so than judges. Years ago, about 20, 30 years ago, judges had more say-so. And the reason why that changed because Prosecutors were claiming that judges were letting people, giving people short sentences, and people were coming back out committing crimes, but not saying that, okay, well, we keep taking from the communities, taking resources from the communities, tearing the communities down, so when people return to society, they don't even have the resources they need to even function on a daily basis, which is food, home, job. Those are the main things you need to function out here in America. So if you don't have those things, of course you're probably going to go commit, rob a store to get some money because you got to feed a baby. People who don't have to live in that don't understand that. And those 
nine times out of ten are prosecutors. And even if they have experienced that, once they get to that level, they act like they never experienced it before. Right. Yeah, that's why I was because it's no it's no way that somebody can come out of prison doing twenty years and they don't have their mom could have died, they don't have no family, none of that, and then the uh shelters are at Homelessness is at an all-time high now for 2023 due to inflation. Then you got a lot of programs. This is what's really killing me inside. It's just you got so many nonprofits saying that they are for the innocent, but they choosing who they want to help. They choosing what they want to do for a person and what they think that's not innocent innocent. And if you go start a nonprofit, Based off the of innocence and want to help recidivism, uh, recidivism, then you should be really implementing your project or your program and not be biased concerning what you think, you know what I'm saying, or what you feel. Because if you started that movement from the get go, then you was for everybody that's innocent. And innocent doesn't mean that, doesn't also just mean that, oh, he really didn't commit the crime a lot of innocent factors. Somebody could have been innocent and try to talk somebody out of a situation, but a situation happened. You know what I'm saying? It still don't make them guilty just because they were hanging around somebody that was guilty. You know, a lot of people is in a lot of situations that didn't need to be what they were in. That don't make them a bad person. So a lot of people trying to get relief off their sentences because they probably learned they left it and they probably really had some innocent um, acts in their case. So, like, 20 years is enough time for somebody. 25 years, 15 years is enough time for somebody to realize and take accountability of their situation. So a lot of people that are running these nonprofits, is they need to understand that everybody deserves a second chance. Not This is not a money getter. This is not something that's political for you to try to capitalize on. You're picking and choosing your cases off of politics. So if you can't stand on your beliefs, then y'all in the wrong field. You know what I'm saying? If you're running an innocent project, then that's what you need to be doing. If you're running a re-entry program, then that's what you need to be doing. You know what I'm saying? Stop trying to get money from the government or the feds and implement some type of movement that y'all that you really ain't on, because you still leave in the same situation where it is. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of these North Carolina movements down here, they are not helping anybody. You know what I'm saying? Really, it's like a two, three out of a five finger on five finger hand. Well, I think what it is is the fact that. You have to, you have to think outside the box. So I mean, you know, each state is different when it comes to their laws and how people can get back in court. And we know that the Supreme Court has made it really hard for people to get back in court. So, like I was in a meeting with the Sentencing Project because they have a second chance campaign network going on because they're trying to motivate more states uh, to start helping people. You know, with their if they, especially if they have claims of wrongful conviction, but just help them in general to try to get back in court. And so I think that 
it's a matter of thinking outside the box. Like she mentioned, you know, some public defender's office can help people with second chances, and we'll get to that. But the attorneys need to start thinking outside the box, like bringing certain motions, thinking outside the box, and just being a critical thinker of how to get around, you know, certain laws, because there's always a loophole in the justice system. There's always a loophole somewhere. So if you can find that loophole to get your client back in, then it's a lot easier. So you just have to think outside the box. And so that's what it is, is just trying to get people to think outside the box, to get around certain certain laws. And so I'm thankful that the Citizen Project has launched that because they're given different people, especially attorneys, a, a different view of how they can help. Because I think some people want to help, but I mean, if you think I'm an advocate and sometimes you just get so worn out and I can imagine being a lawyer trying to help somebody, you just get worn out, especially if it's post-conviction. And so I guess you just sometimes get defeated and you feel like, okay, well, they're going to do what they want to do anyway, because I've heard that. I've heard a lot of people say that. And so I think that if we all work together to think outside the box, even organizations outside of North Carolina and other states, if we all work together to think outside the box of how we can help each of our communities in the United States, I think that would decarcerate us. Because, I mean, a lot of states have different laws and they restrict you. Some states you can only get back into court if you have DNA evidence. And we know a lot of cases don't have DNA evidence. Like your case, there's no DNA evidence there. It's just you have what you have. Like, you just have to go back through and look at the facts to see if Brady violated, if you were violated constitutionally, if a Brady right was violated. It's all about checking to see because we understand. You gotta have, I'm with that 100%. But you still got to have the movement willing to do it. Right. You do. So that's what I'm saying. You have places like the Citizen Project that are offering a different perspective because a lot of these movements are just stuck on the same perspective that they first thought was going to work and it might have worked. But as things change, you have to change the way you move. And so just offering different perspectives. That's why we have different guests from different states to offer different perspectives of what they're doing in their state and how they were able to get victories in their state. It's just everybody working together and it don't matter what state you're in working together to accomplish it for the United States is the only way we're going to change the justice system or the system they say is justice, yeah, which is not. That's what I'm asking. I'm, that's what I'm, I'm asking y'all because <laughs> these nonprofits ain't doing it. They, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I mean, cause it seems like these, it seems like they protecting their own, and they don't want to go against the grain. You know what I'm saying? I don't even experience myself where we asking a lawyer and a lawyer asking who represented you on that, and being that that was his friend, he didn't want to go against the grain. You know what I'm saying? And he know he could think outside the box. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like they protecting their own, and they don't want to go against the grain. And we need these. We need guys like that to be willing to step up out of that, get out of that mind frame. You know, that's why I'm, I'm encouraging all these out of state nonprofits and movements, residents of that, to come down here to North Carolina to help us, Carabell Foundation, start getting some fair justice down here. You know what I'm saying? I don't, 
that I really see us really coming together because we got to get more people that's willing and with the same mind frame to do it. So I'm encouraging everybody from different states to partner with others so we can have a, a better justice system when it comes to helping uh, with relief, uh, re-entry, a better opportunity because it's needed bad. Very bad. The numbers ain't doing nothing but growing. Yeah. Like, seriously. So I'm encouraging all these other states to come on through. All right, Black Light listeners. So this last little segment, I'm going to speak about, um, I don't know if many of you have heard about a holistic defense and what that could look like for each state. Holistic defense combines aggressive legal advocacy with a broader recognition that for most poor people arrested and charged with a crime, the criminal case is not only issued, not only issue with they struggle. A holistic defense can effectively and efficiently serve their clients and defend their clients in a broader perspective. When you have a holistic defense office, you have a whole working team. So that means that not only do you have a public defender, you have a civil attorney, you also have an advocate, and then you have social workers. All of those working parts together can ensure that people are receiving everything that they need while going through the process of trial or you know whatever being in, in the the court system, going through the court system. You have a whole working part of a team back behind you and not just one public defender who has, you know, thousands of other murder cases that they're working on and they're not able to properly investigate or defend you because, for one, they're overworked and underpaid, and two, they just don't have the resources. Public defender's offices are not funded like your prosecutorial offices are. Prosecutors have every resource at their disposal, while the public defense has very minimum resources at their disposal. And so it's a very unbalanced system. That is why prosecutors are probably able to supposedly get convictions based off their expert testimony um, or witnesses when a lot of public defenders don't even get funds for expert witnesses. So they're not able to properly defend their client if they don't have those type of resources. So having a holistic public defender's office means you have a bunch of people working together, all the people that I just named, instead of working in silos. And so I think that that model needs to be replicated all across the United States. Um, I know Brooklyn has one, and they even have where they offer for public defenders and advocates to come and, you know, just look at how they've been able to come up with their holistic defense and how well it has helped people in New York. And so I would encourage a lot of people just to really look into that and do your research, especially public defenders, indigenous defense office, um, to maybe turn it into a holistic working public defender's office. That way everybody is able to get what they need because I feel sorry for lawyers who don't have what they need trying to 
defend somebody's life. All of that, I think, is really important. So, yeah, I mean... Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.